Well, again, uh, we're excited for next weekend to have lunch together. I um, hope you can be a part of that uh, following this service, our second service. Um, it's going to be a great morning, and Caleb Bozeman's going to be smoking a bunch of pulled pork, and it's just going to be a great time together. Um, and if you're new with us, I just want to uh, uh, offer a special invitation to you as well. It's just a great way to get to know um, the church family and have conversations with people, share a table and a meal, and, and so we'd love to have you be a part of that. I had several of you ask me um, about the lobby and all the uh, chocolate out there. We set up a, an intentional trap for young kids to see if they could restrain themselves. Um, we have been talking about over the next uh, last several weeks, actually, and leading up into November, about this idea of neighboring November. Um, and, and of course, this is not just a November thing, but we really um, see the fall as an opportunity to elevate our, our real vision as a neighborhood church. Um, you know, if you've been around here, that we'll, we'll do and we'll continue to do things where we invite people to come join us here for, for different events and activities. Um, we'll do things as a kind of large group out in the neighborhood and um, and we're excited about those, and those have impact. But our number one belief strategy approach to making a difference in the neighborhood, in the community, is, is you all. It's the people that are in your um, sphere of, of influence. And so every week throughout the month, we are going to have some different kind of tactical, practical way to, to, to practice it. Um, and this week, last week, our children's ministry team actually gave out little packets of, of chili uh, seasoning mix. And kind of the same, same vision um, is that we would go out in our community, whether it's share a meal, um, share s'mores over a backyard fire pit, whatever it is, to build relationships. In order for us to love our neighbor, we have to know our neighbor. And in order for us to know our neighbor, we have to spend time with them and and uh, roasting some s'mores over a fire is a great way to do that. Again, we have one of these for every family, so I want to encourage you to take one out. Uh, take one when you leave today. But then this is also, uh, this really encapsulates more the vision behind it. Every week we'll have kind of a theme. This, this week's theme is gather together. Um, that's the expression that we're trying to practice this week. Um, next week's will be something different, and it's almost like love languages of neighboring, if you will. Um, and then there's different ideas, ways to do it, ranging from what we're handing you um, to far more simpler, just take a walk in your neighborhood, introduce yourself to somebody, start a conversation, and see where the Lord leads in that. And so we're excited about this. Um, we want to lead with and vision and purpose, and we really want you all as the church family to view yourself as, as being mobilized as the church, being sent out into our uh, surrounding neighborhoods and community, and, um, and trusting that God's going to use those interactions uh, for his purpose and, and for his kingdom. So on your way out, make sure you grab these things today. By the way, if you, if you take this home and you don't invite neighbors over and that that's not the point right the point is to inspire you and equip you if you eat the chocolate right the lord will know but that's um no but it's all seriously like that the, the point is to equip and inspire and and actually if you have stories um over the next several weeks of in, experiences encounters like we're learning as a church family 
And when we do something here, when we put on an event, like we can count like, oh, this many people came or we had this many new connections. When we really take focused time to be a, a, a sent community, that's, we don't know those stories unless we hear them from you. And so we're praying about it. We're excited about it. Um, and we look forward to, to seeing how God uses this time together. And again, because um, I, we really believe this is it. Our, our, our desire to reach this neighborhood, to love them well, is, is about people being in their neighborhoods, loving their neighbors well. Um, if you've been with us this fall, we've been studying the book of James together. And we're now about halfway into James' letter. James, who is the younger brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And he's writing to really what are some of the very first Christians, the first expression of the gathered church in Jerusalem. And, and he's writing to instruct them and to encourage them to continue in their faith with endurance and with wisdom. And he's going he's gonna to continue in this same vein as he revisits a subject that he's already spoken to in this letter. Um, and that is wisdom and endurance as it relates to our words, to the things that we say. And so once again, James is inviting us, we've been using this metaphor in this series, he's inviting us to stand in front of the mirror of God's word, which in James's mind, the, the New Testament doesn't exist yet. He envisions that as, as the life and the teachings of Jesus. We stand in front of that. We allow that to speak into our lives. And then we go and we continue to live in view of what we saw in the mirror. And, and that's our intention today, to talk about that as it relates to our words. Many of you know that, um, that I am like a, a hobbyist woodworker. Um, and, and I've gotten better over the years and learned some things and applied some things. But if you, uh, in the woodworking community, when you reach like the top of your craft, when you're the best of the best, right, you, you are given the title of a master craftsman. I don't know who gives you that title. I don't know if there's like a, a test that you take or something you have to like check off or whatever, but What's interesting is that when you, when people start to talk about you as a master craftsman, what it typically means is that you have become proficient in the most difficult aspects of your craft, on the things that are, are most challenging to do, the things that most people struggle with or, or sort of avoid altogether. You have become so effective at it, so proficient at it, that you are labeled a master craftsman. And in our discipleship to Jesus, when James thinks about what does it mean to grow into maturity, what does it mean to, to be in a place of, of, of commitment and fullness, he articulates the thing that we have to become proficient in, the thing that we have to master, is our words. It's, it's how we use our tongue. In fact, look at what he says. We're going to come back to this, but this is just kind of his... His overarching statement in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, and let me just add, I think culturally, let's add to that, um, rights, types, posts, like, okay, words in general. If you don't stumble in that, he is mature, able to control the whole body. That, that's an extraordinary claim. And of course, this is not 
an, an exclusion to our actions. Um, James has been pretty clear that our faith ought to be lived out in our deeds. We talked about that last week. Faith without works is dead. And, and I think James, by the way, would, would view a faith that was all about talk. Like he, he would call that a, a form of false speech, I believe. But nevertheless, James makes the point that there's such a direct correlation between the condition of our hearts and the words of our mouth that when, when what is coming out of our mouth, particularly when it's not in alignment with the way of and the teachings of Jesus, it's, it's revealing an area in our heart where we are still in need of the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. So we can think of, of our, our tongues, our words, um, as sort of a barometer that is, is, connects to us as a whole person. And again, this is a topic that James has already just um, spoken into throughout this letter. Think about the very first chapter. In verse 19, James says this, be quick to listen. Slow to speak, right? Slow to anger. Just, just that one phrase. If, if, if we were slow to speak, cautious with our words, what would the impact of that be uh, in, in our community, in our church, in our families, in our homes, our workplaces? Verse 126, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Again, James drives right at the heart of it. Like, we're going to have all this other stuff together. But if, if it doesn't align with our words, then what's the point? Chapter 2, verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Or in other words, your words ought to reflect the truth of the gospel. Like this is the call. And so now in chapter 3, James is going to dive into this subject a bit further. Let's turn, if you have your Bibles with you today, let's turn to James chapter 3. We're going to spend some time uh, here today and and work through this chapter together beginning in verse one i think if i can okay there we go uh james chapter three verse one he says not many of you should become teachers my brothers (coughs) excuse me Uh, because you know that you will receive a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many ways and if anyone does not stumble in what he says he is mature able also to control the whole body. Now, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we direct their whole bodies and consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Let's stop here. James's initial sort of thrust, his initial point that he wants to understand is about uh, what we'll call the power of the tongue, the significance or the weight of it, the gravity of the tongue, if you will. This first section in, in James, his point is, is abundantly clear. It's about the power of our words. And here he's thinking of this, I think at least initially, in the context of the message that we have been entrusted with. When I was a kid in elementary school, we used to play this game. Maybe some of you have done this as well, but 
a teacher would circle up all the students, and the first students would, would uh, be given a sentence, and the teacher would whisper that in the, the, the student's ear, and then they would whisper it to the next student, and you'd go all around the circle, and finally the last student would share what it was that the message that had been passed on to them. And inevitably, like, it was nowhere near the sentence that the teacher gave the first student. Everybody would laugh, right? And, and I, I think we called that telephone. Anybody ever? Okay, you, I'm not the only one. Good. Um, and, and, and James's point to this is very similar, but he is counting on a very different result. Right? He's, we have been entrusted with this life-giving message of the gospel. We're passing it on from person to person. The, the importance of getting this right, the power of those words is absolutely critical. It's absolutely foundational. In fact, in, he, in a team, my team group is reading through Hebrews together. In Hebrews chapter 2, he says the very same thing, but it's from the perspective of the listener. He says, like, listen closely. Like, we have to, we have to get this. We can't, make, we can't veer from, from this. And he starts in, in verse 1, which I will just kind of categorize as every preaching pastor's least favorite verse in the Bible, right? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know you will receive a stricter judgment. Like, who wants to sign up for that exactly? I, I think his point is that there is an inherent responsibility when we are in the position of passing on the life and teaching of Jesus to those that are listening. There's gravity, there's weight in the words. So much so that James indicates that it comes with a stricter judgment. Remember at this time when James is writing this and when this message is being proclaimed, there is no New Testament. In fact, even if there were, the vast majority of the population at the time was, was illiterate. This is the, the method of it was Jesus had done life with his disciples, the apostles. They saw it from him. They were taught it from him. He entrusted it to them. They took it and they began to teach it to faithful men and women who are trusting their lives to Jesus. And these faithful men and women, they get put in various places throughout Jerusalem and then ultimately beyond. And they're running these sort of house church experiences where they're taking what the apostles have given to them and they're teaching it there. They're telling them about the life and teaching of Jesus. And these people are taking it home and they're, they're teaching their kids about the life and teachings of Jesus. And they're, they're teaching their neighbors. And his point is that it's absolutely essential, right, that we do this with with faithfulness, that we're accurate in what we're saying. Our words matter. We're being struck, and, and, and um, Peter, in response to Jesus, right, when, when Jesus asked them if they're going to stay faithful to, to follow him in John chapter 6, he said, you have the words of eternal life. Like, these are the words that we carry with us. We have to get this right. And we've received it from the source itself. Paul, in his uh, um, mentoring and discipleship of a young leader by the name of Timothy, he, he, he teaches him this very same principle. Um, and speaking to Timothy, he says, what you have heard from me, which, which Paul on the road to Damascus, he received it directly from Jesus. Paul has now shared this with Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able also to, to teach others also. Right? This is the strategy that the early church employed. And James's point is like, we, 
we got to take this seriously. This work of the gospel matters, and we have to get it right. And if we are sitting here thinking, like, I'm glad, like, I'm not a pastor, right? Like, I, I really think James is applying this more broadly. I think he's, he's applying it more specifically to, to those of us who walk in the way of Jesus, which goes into his thesis statement then in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's mature, able also to control the whole body. So now he sets this vision in front of us where, where in our discipleship to Jesus, right, he's saying we, we all there's struggle in every area of, of our life, but, but if we become, if we get to the point in our um, pursuit of Jesus where we become disciplined with our words, with our tongue, right, that's an indication that's revealing a sort of maturity that is inherent in, in every area of our life. Or as John Dixon puts it in his commentary, that we're on our way to mastering their entire ethical life. James succinctly says, able to control the whole body. I think it warrants just a moment of, of reflection for us here. Like if we just take some time to think to ourselves here in, in our, our discipleship to Jesus, as we talk and think about being living as an apprentice of Jesus, how much time and energy do we put into the way in which our words that we say or the words that we write or the words that we post, how and when and what way do they align with Jesus and his kingdom? How do they point people to the truth of the gospel? Because if I'm, and I'm, if I'm understanding James correctly, he's saying when we are disciplined in our words, right, there is a, a, a correlation, a connection that helps us or that shows a discipline in our entire lives. And we're going to get to this in a bit, but, but I believe that James understands it this way because he sees a connection between our words, our mouths, and our hearts. So to be disciplined in our words ultimately requires, it's the result of, of surrender in our hearts. And when we have surrendered in our hearts to the way of Jesus, that's going to bear fruit in every area of our lives. And to bring that point home, to drive that point home, James starts on this series of, of, of similes and metaphors, these illustrations of, of what this means, the power of it. And the first two that he uses is a bit in the mouth of a horse and a rudder on a, a ship, both of which either direct the animal or set the course of the ship together. And James, in this, using these similes, he's making the point, don't, don't underestimate the power of the tongue. Again, in verse 5, he makes the connection, so too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things like James is saying it clearly like a bit in the mouth of a horse like a, a rudder on a ship a, the tongue is a small instrument but it has tremendous impact and then he starts to warn us because like all things that have a tendency to to be incredibly powerful they can also simultaneously be incredibly dangerous they can cause great harm which points us then to the danger of the tongue. The danger of the tongue. Back in verse 5, 
He continues on now. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. And he goes on with these, these metaphors. He says, consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessings and cursings come out of the same mouth. Brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. I, um, I don't think that I have to work very hard to make the case to you that, that words can do incredible damage. In fact, across this room, I would venture to guess that, that many of us still carry scars of careless, thoughtless, uh, sometimes intentional, directive, hurtful things that people have said to us over the course of our life. I'm not uh, a trained therapist by any stretch of the imagination, um, but I sometimes do pastoral counseling and the, any number of times where I've sat across my desk from somebody and I'm, I'm praying with them or, or trying to um, speak truth to them and, and listening to them because they're carrying an identity that was born out of a pain that they suffered, sometimes all the way back in childhood, based on a, a description, an identity that was spoken out of hate or anger or jealousy or whatever it was. And this has shaped them well into their adulthood. I'm trying to speak into that situation the truth of what Jesus says about them. Like I don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to convince ourselves that what James says here is true. Every time I read um, James chapter 3, I'm reminded of, of my high school chemistry class. Um, this idea of a, of a spark that ignites a great fire. I was never uh, much of like a science guy, um, but my high school chemistry teacher was, he was like a mad scientist and he loved it. So he kind of got excited just because you never knew what was going to happen that day kind of thing. And he was doing an experiment called fire from water. And he had this uh, a plate and there's a chemical mix that when um, it's, it, experiences water and it ignites, it sparks. And so he's making the point that if there's a fire in the lab, you can't always extinguish it with water. So he's pouring this little bit out on the plate. His teaching assistant is, is over here with the jar of, of this chemical mix. And he takes an eyedropper and it's amazing, right? It's just whew, like a, like a lights up is super cool. And we were like, do it again, do it again. You know, so he's appeasing us and he pours more on the plate and he takes the eyedropper and as he goes, he just has a, like a little flick of the wrist, like, you, you know, indistinguishable. One tiny drop of water flies through the air and lands directly in the jar that the teaching assistant is. And he's now, he's just got a flamethrower at this point. The whole jar ignites. There's kids just diving 
everywhere. Like it's just flames and sparks and, and he's screaming and we're screaming. I still like can remember like poking my head above the desk to like see who was alive at this point. Like all because one tiny drop of water just set things into chaos. And this is sort of the gravity which, which James speaks of our words. Right? That he continues to illustrate their potential for danger. Remember this summer when we were talking about Proverbs and wisdom? Solomon had a lot to say about how we use our words. In fact, in chapter 18 of Proverbs, he says this. He says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So it's not like good days and bad days are nice things and not so nice things. See, it's about this is death and life. This is, this is the potential for life and the potential to do incredible harm. James compares the tongue to sparking or igniting a destructive fire. In verses 7 through 8, he compares it to this untamable, poisonous snake. And look at the descriptions that we just read. It's a world of unrighteousness in our bodies. It stains the whole body. It sets the course of life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Right, we, don't, we don't need to do a lot of interpretive work here to understand James's overarching point, that this small part of our bodies that we use to speak with, not only does it wield so much power, but if we aren't aligning it with the way of Jesus, it has the potential to do so much destructive power. It's this untamed creature full of, of venom, he even sources this type of corrupt speech in, in hell in itself. He says it's essentially it's satanic. And his, his point is clear. The, the potential of our speech to do incredible harm is, is more than we recognize. And I can tell you, I can think of specific moments where in an effort to be funny or in an attempt to be self-advancing or whatever, I've said things to people, oftentimes people I love, care about, that I know hurt, that I know, I know was, was, did damage in their hearts and their lives. And this is a deep regret over those things. It's not only something that we experience from the side of wounds that we carry, but it's also something that we experience from the wounds that we have inflicted. It's like this idea of like nitroglycerin, right? Like we're, we're trudging through carrying this thing and we have to be so cautious and so careful because it has the power to give life, right? Or it has the power to explode. And now James drives it, what I think is really at the core of this, what's really bothering him here in verses 9 through 12. He says there is, is this duplicitous sort of experience in the church where people are gathered together and we're worshiping and we're praising people and we're lifting them up. And then out of the same mouths that we're just doing that, we're speaking words that are belittling and they're damaging and they're disrespectful and they're harmful. And he's saying you're praising God with, in one moment and you are demeaning those created in God's image in, in another moment. And he says, this, this should not be this way. This should not be true here. 
In one moment, we speak praises to our God, and the next, we tear down those created in our image. And really here, James is just echoing his older brother. Because again, the source in all of this is, is a heart issue. If you have, turn over real quick to, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. These are the words of Jesus. He's driving at this, this same point here. Uh, verse 33, either make the tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, continues in this snake theme here, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from the storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from the storeroom of evil. Verse 36, I tell you, that on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. That's not great, right? For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Here, not only is James echoing his, his older brother, Jesus, but he's continuing with this same sort of similar tack they had as it relates to our works, our deeds. That being that they don't save us, that is, that's based on faith entirely and inclusively, but what it does is it reveals what is true about us. It reveals because it's inseparably linked to the source. A spring drawing water from the same source of water cannot produce two different types of water, he says. If we've come to the place in our hearts where we have surrendered to Jesus, where we're praising him as our Lord and Savior, then the words that come from us as it relates to how we speak about those who bear his image ought to be words that are esteeming and encouraging and building up. It doesn't mean that we, there's never hard things to say because James says hard things, like, right? There's true things that are difficult to say, but it's what's driving it and the purpose in it. Simply put, like, our words ought to surrender to the royal law, love your neighbor. Our words, in our words, we are to love God and love our neighbors. And to that, and to that I've obviously spoken too many words today. Um, I'm going to wrap up quickly. To that, James offers us wisdom for our words. Real quick here in verse 13, let's wrap up this chapter. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should, uh, he should, by his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in gentleness that come from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above that is first pure, but wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. If we were to leave off our conversation today in verse 12, if, if, if that's where we ended this, I would at least feel a bit vulnerable. Like, I, okay, I'm recognizing the problem. I'm not necessarily seeing, like, what do we do? 
But James here, again, the expectation all the way back in verse 2 is that this is an area that we can grow into this level of sort of maturity in, of, of becoming dis- disciplined in our words and our surrender to Jesus. And how do we do that? What is necessary in that pursuit? And now, once again, he comes back to this theme that he's had throughout the entire letter. What do we need? Wisdom. We need wisdom. And not just any wisdom. It's not knowledge. It is the wisdom that was taught by and ultimately embodied in the person of Jesus. Right? He's the one who made it for us. And he gives us this sort of this litmus test that we can use to determine if we're operating under kind of the wisdom of this world or, or the wisdom that comes from above. He says if, if our words, if our, our lives, if it is producing selfish ambition and, and bitter envy, that is a clear indication that we're using the, the wisdom of this world. And he says it's earthly and it's unspiritual and he even calls it demonic. But the wisdom that's been embodied by Jesus, here, apply this to our words. But the wisdom from above, that's, it's pure. It's peace-loving, it's gentle, it's compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without pretense. It's this fruit of righteousness sown in peace that cultivates peace. This is the wisdom of Jesus. These are the indicators that we have surrendered in our hearts to him. And so I, I want to I challenge you as we, as we wrap up this morning. I want to give you an exercise this week. Um, I want you to pick a day, like an eight-hour work day, school day um, for our kids. And I want you to make a conscious effort to say nothing that is not in alignment with verses 17 and 18 in there. Like those, if, if, if it's in any way, if it's self-promoting, if any way it's demeaning of others, if it doesn't make the category of pure and peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, fruit of righteousness, peaceful. If it's not those words, then, then don't say it. And, and as you do this, what's going to happen is you're going to think of things that you were about to say. And then you're going to be like, hang on a second. And I want you to take note of those things, those moments. Like, why was I going to, why was I going to make that vindictive joke or, or, say this, this cruel thing to this person? Why was that what popped into my head? Because if I'm understanding James correctly, right, I think what James is saying is that's exposing an area of our heart where we are still in need of the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. And when I recognize that thing, when I have the opportunity to say, hang on a second, that's not the kind of word that I want to speak in this moment. Then I'm brought into a place where I can confess that and I can surrender that and I say, okay, Holy Spirit, like, you're still doing a work in me. Would you change that in my heart so that my words more accurately reflect you? I had a couple of people after the Saturday night service ask, does it have to be eight consecutive hours? Uh, <laughs> like, I think they were like envisioning a meeting that they were going to be in or something. They're like, that's going to be really hard. Uh, um, and somebody else asked, do they have to be waking hours? I w- yeah, like I was thinking we were conscious at the moment um, that we were doing this, but it, Kind of next level in this experiment would be to, um, to sit down with somebody, your small group, uh, a spouse, a friend, somebody you do life with, and, 
and talk about it. Like, what did you take note of? What came into your mind that you had to say, hang on a second, that's not, that doesn't fit James 3, 17 and 18. Um, and, and I really believe that the Holy Spirit will do a growing work in us in that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and, and they'll close us uh, this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and the way it challenges us. We thank you again for James's pastoral heart, um, his passion for the church, and his passion to see us live as disciplined apprentices of Jesus and help our words to reflect the truth of the gospel and your transformative work in our life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.